0: You are listening to the Draper fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar, brought to you weekly by Stanford Technology Ventures Program at Stanford University School of Engineering.
1: Let me talk a little bit about uh, Tina. But if you notice, the bio is right there, but I'll do this for our friends um, online and so on. Uh, So I have the pleasure of working with her because she's the executive director of uh, the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, which maybe she'll talk a little bit about, because I, once I get started, I wouldn't be able to stop. But it wouldn't exist without Tina. Um, she is part of that. She leads all of our operations and contributes to a, a great deal of the intellectual content of our of our activities, including I get to work with her on the Mayfield Fellows Program. I see a few ex-Mayfield Fellows in here, and I hope that I see some future Mayfield Fellows in here. For those of you who've heard about that work study program for uh, startups, um, but one thing she did, what was really cool, is she brought together all the entrepreneurship groups at Stanford because there are about fifteen of them, whether you know from all the different schools and whether they're student led like BASIS or faculty led like SDVP. She brought them together in kind of a federation, uh, the Stanford Entrepreneurship Network, and and it's that's an extraordinary uh, contribution. One of the things I like about Tina is that she, she it's hard to put a label on her. Look at that. Sub- Entrepreneur, management consultant, author, a scientist, and, and it's really true. It's no BS. Uh, in fact, she has more than the BS. She has a paha. She has a PhD. Uh, I, I worked in that all day. She has a PhD uh, from the medical school here in none other than neuroscience. And so I have no idea what that is. And maybe she'll tell us a little bit because I went to Berkeley. Finally, never taught us what neuroscience was. So, um, so without further ado, let me call up my partner, my peer and a wonderful friend, Tina Seelig. Good luck.
0: Hello, everybody. It is so fabulous to be here to kick off this quarter. In fact, I normally am in the role of introducing the speakers and have the very, uh, so you'll get to see me. If you like me today, you'll get to see me uh, the next few weeks as I introduce different speakers and play the different role. So this is an interesting talk. I want to tell you a little bit about the history of this talk, what I wish I knew when I was 20. Essentially, um, I have a uh, son who next week is going to be 17 years old. I'm sure I don't look that old, but I do have a 17-year-old. And about a year ago... um, I realized, oh my gosh, he's gonna get launched. He's gonna be graduating, and I wish there were all sorts of things that I imparted to him. So I opened up a little Word document, and I started making a list of all these things. Now, I do not communicate to my kid with PowerPoint presentations. But (laughs) I uh, started making a list of things I hoped he would know by the time he left home. And then I was asked to give a talk to the business leadership program at Stanford. And I thought, what am I going to tell these students who are graduating from Stanford? And I looked at this list that I had crafted for my son and thought, you know, These things I put down here for my son about sort of things I want him to know are really things that probably students at Stanford would want to hear about, too. So I crafted into into a PowerPoint presentation called What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20. And I've had the opportunity to give this talk a couple of different times. And in fact, I just gave this talk the last time two weeks ago to 500 cadets at West Point. So uh, this talk seems to have traveled well across the country and uh, I was very honored to be asked to share with you. So let me tell you what this is going to be. I have 10 things. I took this whole long list, I put together, and whittled it down to my top 10 things that I wish I knew when I was 20. And um, I'm going to start with, um, in, in just a second, but I want to let you know I have punctuated this collection of ideas and stories I'm going to tell with video clips. And I'm going to give a quick little commercial here. Uh, we videotape all of the lectures Lectures that are the entrepreneurial thought leader lectures. We take them back to our lab, we edit them into video clips, and we have a collection of close to a 1,000 video clips, all free, all searchable, all downloadable, um, that you can look at. So if you like these video clips that I have used to punctuate this talk, uh, you can go to the Educators Corner that STVP runs and see many, many more. So without further ado, the first lesson is every problem is an opportunity for creative solution. Another way of putting this is that attitude is everything, and you control your attitude. I teach a course uh, in the ms department on creativity and innovation. In fact, I see some of my students in the audience here. And the, this is the overarching theme of the class that every problem is an opportunity for creative solution. And what I do over the course of the quarter is I throw problems at the students. These are all problems with no right answer. These are problems with really open-ended solutions. And my goal is to get the students more and more comfortable solving problems. In fact, I want them to go look for problems. The bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity. And uh, by the end of the course, usually students say, bring it on, bring on those problems, because they realize that the problems that they have are probably problems that other people have as well, and this ends up being a huge opportunity for them to figure out some solutions that would help others as well. Um, I want to tell you, I, in addition to uh, being the Executive Director of STVP, I also have the honor uh, to participate in the new D School, or the Design Institute at Stanford. And last quarter, I was invited to teach one week on entrepreneurship in the design school course. And so I figured, how do I distill this down, this concept of turning problems into opportunities into one week? So I crafted an assignment where I gave every team, and there were 14 teams, every team received an envelope with seed funding in it. And this seed funding was a total of, you're not going to believe this, $5. Okay? And every team had as much time as they wanted from a Wednesday afternoon... Until Sunday night, as much time as they wanted to brainstorm and do whatever they wanted. But as soon as they cracked over that envelope, they had two hours to make as much money as possible. This was about identifying opportunities and creating value. Okay? So, and on Sunday night, they had to give me one PowerPoint slide that described what they did and how much they made. And on Monday, they got to give a three-minute pitch to the class on what they had done. So I want you to think about it for a second. Think about what you might do if you had $5 and two hours. And I want you to tell me how much money you think these students earned. Do you think that they maybe doubled their money? Do you think they could have done that? Do you think they tripled it? What do you think? Do you think anybody even made ten times the amount? What do you think? Tell me what you think. You think that someone did what? hundred. dollars? That they made hundred dollars? You think that from five dollars they made a hundred dollars? Anyone else? What do you think? Nobody who's in the class can answer. <laughs> Well, I want to tell you, the teams that were the winning teams brought in well over $600. And the average amount that was brought in was 200 And I will tell you the other trick and the clue here. The teams that made the most money did not use the $5. They didn't even use it. These were... Ideas where they looked around and found these incredible opportunities lying on the floor around them in Palo Alto and and on Stanford campus. So the winning team that they brought in $650, you know what they did? They challenged all the assumptions. They sold their three-minute pitch time in class on Monday to a company that wanted to recruit the students in the class, (laughs) okay? But guess what? It was incredibly successful, right? (laughs) There were other groups that did equally creative things. They went into Palo Alto and realized that there were really long lines at the restaurants on Saturday night. So their team of four people went out and made reservations for four to six people in all of these restaurants. And as their time came up, they sold their reservations. There were groups that did things that on the surface seemed like it wasn't that gonna make a ton of money. But did, they basically set up a stand in front of Tresitor and they, for free, would measure your bike tire pressure. Maybe some of you had your bike tire pressure measured for free. But if it needed air, they filled up your tire for a dollar. And guess what? They ended up realizing halfway through that if they didn't ask for a dollar but asked for donations, that people gave them a lot more. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a really interesting sort of thinking about reciprocity, right? Once people got this service, they felt very indebted. And the students who put air in the tires at first thought they were sort of taking advantage of these students until they realized that this was a real value that they were providing for people on campus. So the list goes on and on and on. I could talk for the entire time about the stories, but this was a life-changing experience for a lot of these students because they realized that there are opportunities in front of them everywhere and that there's no point at which they can say, I don't have any money in my pocket because they should look around and find opportunities to create value. So I want to follow this with the first video clip, which is a video clip of Vinod Khosla. Now, many of you probably know Vinod Khosla. He was one of the founders of Sun Microsystems and also uh, for many years has been a very successful venture capitalist at Kleiner Perkins. And this video clip is one that I use almost all the time. I know it by heart, because it is such a powerful way of showing us that this is not just something that happens in a creativity class. This happens every single day in the venture capital world. So here's what Vinod Khosla has to say about problems and opportunities.
2: One thing I would say is find a big problem. to me, any big problem is a big opportunity. Because if you think about it, no problem, no solution, no company. It's very simple. Every big problem is a big opportunity. If you don't have a big problem, you don't have a big opportunity. Nobody will pay you to solve a non-problem.
0: I encourage you to listen to this over several times because what he's saying is exactly true. The bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity. No one will pay you to solve a non-problem. So the second one, the harder I work, the luckier I get. This is something my very wise father told me uh, as I was growing up, it's something I heard a lot. And this is about the fact that you need to put yourself in a position to make yourself lucky. People often look at others and say, wow, that person was so lucky. But if you really look at the story, they have done a tremendous number of things to make themselves lucky. You have to meet a lot of people, you have to read a lot of interesting things, go to fascinating lectures, uh, travel, <laughs> travel all over the place. Turn around to the person next to you, figure out something that you have in common. It is remarkable the number of things that happen when you put yourself out there. Um, I have a colleague of mine from Chile who told me that he tells his students that if you go somewhere and you do not meet someone new, you have at the minimum lost the opportunity to make a friend and or at a maximum you've probably lost a million dollars. So you need to think about that. In fact, On my way to West Point a couple of weeks ago, I was reading Scientific American on the airplane, and I was incredibly lucky that I opened it up because there's a whole article here, maybe some of you read it, called As Luck Would Have It, and it's about are some people luckier than others? And I want to tell you this is exactly what I was saying. I'm going to read you a couple of quotes from this article, so uh, you don't just have to believe me. Here's what it says. It says, lucky people smile twice as often, and engage in more eye contact than unlucky people do, which leads to more social encounters, which generates more opportunities. Lucky people tend to be more relaxed than most. They are more likely to notice chance opportunities, even when they are not expecting them. Lucky people are open to new experiences in their lives. They don't tend to be bound by convention, and they like the notion of unpredictability. And finally, but even in the face of adversity, lucky people turn bad, Bad breaks into good fortune. That, again, leads back to the turning problems into opportunities. And I have to tell you, I was extremely lucky to find this article. So I want to tell you, uh, I've got a video clip here from Judy Estrin. And Judy Estrin is an extraordinarily successful serial entrepreneur. She now runs a company called Packet Design, and I think at one point was the CTO of Cisco. Uh, She was on the board of Disney. Uh, She's extremely well connected. And here, she's talking a couple of years ago, it was right after the internet bubble burst, and she was talking about the role of luck in for startup companies.
3: The first is what I always tell everybody because I think people forgot this in the bubble. Startups are hard. Um, and in, in some ways the whole valley got in this mode of, of course I'm going to start up and of course it'll succeed and of course I'll make millions of dollars, has to happen. Well startups are hard and they're risky and lots of them don't succeed. You need to combine skills to make them, uh, to make them happen. Uh, details. You can't just have a broad vision. You have to really be good at executing all of the details. Um, It's lots of work, and it takes lots of luck. So you can have a great idea if your timing is off or if the world collapses around you. And a lot of the companies that are not in business today that started in 2000, how did they know in the beginning of 2000 that the world was collapsed around them? So it's not that those were bad entrepreneurs. They had a lot of bad luck. It's okay. even harder Oops. now.
0: So that's Okay. We're going to move on. The next one is find the intersection between your interests, your skills and the market. Now I want to tell you this is one of my favorite because people often tell you I want to raise your hand if someone has ever told you in your life, follow your passions. Everybody, you know what? That is a cop-out piece of advice. Okay? <laughs> Don't listen to it passions are, are necessary, but they certainly are not sufficient, because you need to understand where your passions are, where your skills are, and what the market is. So let's just dissect this for a little bit. If you're passionate about something, let's say I'm really passionate about music, but guess what? I can't carry a tune. Guess what, I can be a great fan. If you love something, if you're really passionate about it, you can be a great fan. I can go to concerts, I can buy music, I can put everything I love on my iPod and rock out walking across campus. But guess what, nobody is going to pay me for that, OK? I'm a great fan. If I'm a passionate about something and I'm really good at it, then that means it is my hobby. Okay. if that's what it is, it's I'm good at it and and I love doing it. I paint, for example, I fill my house with all my crazy paintings. But guess what? It is unlikely that I'm going to support myself with my artwork. So it's a fabulous stuff, hobbies. It's one of the most important things in life is to have hobbies. But it certainly is not necessarily a career. Now, let's look in the other direction. If you have skills at something and there's a market for it, let's say you're an accountant, um, what would you call that? What would that be? It's a job, right? And most people in the world have a job. They have the skills, and there's a market, and people pay them, whether they're digging ditches or uh, working in any other role uh, where they're good at doing something, um, and people will pay them. But the sweet spot is when you find the intersection of your skills, the market, and your passions. That is a career. And that's what I encourage you to think about. Because um, oftentimes we're led into into believing that if we just follow our passions, it will all work. But you really have to look at the entire picture. So the next one. Try lots of things and keep what works. Now this is um, very much related to the harder I work, the luckier I get brought this one in because it's a slightly different flavor. This one is about risk-taking and being willing to fail. In fact, if you're not failing sometimes, you're not taking enough risks. And one of the things that we do that we're lucky about being in Silicon Valley is that there's an incredible culture of risk-taking and a comfort with uncertainty and a willingness in this area to um, embrace failure and to learn from failure. This is certainly not the case around the world. There are many places in the world where if you fail, I mean, you really feel like you need to just sort of change your name and move somewhere else. It's not okay. But here, we are very much encouraged to learn from our mistakes and to do it again. In fact, there are many, many people who have started one company that has failed and then gone on to do something else and been very successful. And uh, people look at them and say, you know, what did you learn from that failure? Great, you won't do that again. In fact, there are wonderful stories that I can tell about that. But I want to make sure I move on. Um it's interesting um I could go through my life and tell you some fantasy story that includes all of my successes but I want to tell you my life is littered with failures I can tell you about you know so I've written a bunch of books but my office at home is filled with manuscripts and book for, book proposals uh, my family can tell you this uh that have not been published I mean for every manuscript that has been published there are probably two that have not um and I'm I in each time I take on a project, I'm really convinced it's going to be successful. I put my heart and soul into it, but sometimes it just doesn't work. And then I say, okay, what did I learn from this? And move on to the next thing. In fact, one of the things I have my students do uh, in almost every one of my classes is I have them write failure resumes. That usually gets them very anxious when I ask them to do this, especially Stanford students who are so used to looking at their lives through the lens of successes. But writing a failure resume is incredibly important because it's important to acknowledge the things that you've learned from the mistakes you've made. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we actually hire people with experience because they've made mistakes and have learned them. We don't just hire people who are smart right out of school. We hire people who have done things and have learned from their experiences. So try lots of things. Keep what works. Don't be afraid of failure. And in fact, I'm going to play you a video clip now, uh, Randy Commissar. Uh, Many of you probably know Randy. He teaches here in our department. Uh, For many years, he was a virtual CEO, and he uh, also is now a partner at Kleiner Perkins. And he is talking in this next clip about um, risk-taking in Silicon Valley and our embracing of being able to fail. And it's a long clip, so I'm going to cut it off partway because and if you want to hear the whole thing, please feel free to go um, to the website and listen to the whole clip.
4: Um, I always tell people that what distinguishes Silicon Valley is not its successes, but the way in which it deals with failure. We live in an industry, the innovation industry, and we live in a place, Silicon Valley, Um, that operates much like the earn-run averages for batters in the major leagues. Uh, They're going to strike out more than they hit home runs, and they're going to hit less than 500. That's the deal. That's the deal in the Valley. We're going to hit less than 500. It's by definition the case. This is about experimentation. This is about... Innovation is about taking risks to do things that haven't been done before if you could do them with a level of certainty that would increase the odds above fifty percent we wouldn't need Silicon Valley big companies would do it
0: okay if you want there's it's, the clip goes on for a long time so if you want to hear more about this uh, feel free to check it out so the next thing I wish I knew when I was 20 was that you don't have to wait to be anointed now It's interesting. Uh, When uh, I grew up as a kid, uh, my father uh, was a very successful corporate executive, and every couple of years, uh, he would come home and have another promotion, you know, promotion to this level and this level and this level. And one day, I came home when I was uh, a young adult, and I had printed out business cards, and they said, Tina Seelig, president. He looked at me like, what are you talking about? You know, who are you to say that you're the president? You know, he had always worked in companies where you Actually, every year or two you get promoted. Someone else tells you, yes, you are now moving up to the next level. And what I realized at that point is that entrepreneurs are those people who make their own business cards. They're the people, okay? They're the ones who decide what they can do. They're not the ones who wait for someone else to tell them what they can do. And I would encourage you to think about this in every place in your life. It doesn't mean you just have to go start a company, but the way that I view this is, you know, you do the job and then you get the job. That happens in so many organizations. You don't have to wait for someone to tell you that you are empowered to take on a new responsibility or to take a leadership role. Just take the role, do it, embrace it, and people will then come to you and say, you know what, you are a leader, and uh, we're going to now you know, give you the business card. But I, I want to leave you with the thought that, uh, you know, entrepreneurs are those people who don't wait for others to empower them. They empower themselves. And you, with all the skills that you have here, certainly have uh, the power in your hands uh, to take on the different roles that you know that you can, that you can embrace. So the next one. It is a very small world, and uh, don't burn bridges. I'm going to tell you a secret. There are only 50 people in the world. The rest is all wallpaper, because you are going to bump into the same people again and again and again. If you look around this room, I promise you you're going to bump into these people in New York, in Paris, in London, in Cairo. You are going to bump into the same people who you knew, and you need to make sure That the relationships you build now and as you move forward are ones that you're proud of and that they're relationships that you, um, that are not going to come back and bite you in the behind. Um, I can tell you many, many stories, uh, of this from my experience. In fact, uh, when I, seven years ago, uh, when I was interviewing for my job here at Stanford and, uh, met Tom Byers and he took a look at my resume, he certainly didn't have to ask me for any of my references. I had never met Tom before. I had never seen him before. I didn't know that he knew every single person I knew. All he needed to do was to make a few phone calls to his friends to get some sort of check on who I was and whether I was someone who would be a good member of the team. In fact, just a story that happened yesterday, an announcement went out about this talk. I got an email yesterday from someone who said, I thought I recognized your name, but when I read your bio, I realized I took a class from you 17 years ago, and I know it's 17 years because he said I was pregnant, and I had just written a book on the chemistry of cooking, and he took a class with me at Drager's that I was teaching on the chemistry of cooking. So guess what? 17 years later, you know he still remembered who I was, and who knows? I hopefully I made a good impression. So I. I want to encourage you to think about this as you go through life, that it really is a small world, and uh, you will be circulating in the same groups again and again. And uh, without telling you more stories, I'm sure that even in your life so far, you've, you've experienced this. The next one. You can do it all, just not at the same time. Uh, This is something I learned from a dear friend of mine. Uh, It's one of those issues that especially comes up when you're a new parent and you had your very full life before and all of a sudden this new person lands in your life and you're trying to figure out how can you do it all plus be a good parent. Um, And in fact, what I would say in that note is uh, it forces you to be very creative. It forces you to think about your priorities and it often forces you to make some very creative, uh, come up with some creative solutions to trying to balance all these things. But in general... It's important to figure out what your priorities are and change them regularly. You need to evaluate your life and say, here at this point when I'm a student at Stanford, here are the three things that are most critical to me. And I'm going to do those really well. I know so many people who take on so much that what ends up happening is the balls start falling off the table. They start dropping balls. They don't deliver anymore. They, and it is a terrible thing. It is much better to say no to someone, that you can't do something, and take it off your plate, take it out of your hands, so that you can keep the balls that you have in the air. Um, It's, uh, it's, um, I've wanted to make sure I didn't forget. Oh, yes, I was going to say, one of the uh, pieces of this that I think is really interesting is think about how often you reassess your priorities. It's interesting, some people um, are kind of fire and forget missiles, right? They sort of set themselves up with a set of goals, and, you know, five years later, they sort of put their head up and say, am I where I need to be? Other people reassess their lives every five minutes. Now, either one is not necessarily good or bad, but I think I would encourage you to think about how frequently you assess your goals and think if that's the time frame that works for you because I know that I tend to reassess things very, very frequently, which means I'm always uh, correcting. It probably is a little more than I need to, um, if you ask my family, they would probably say that you know, can we just stick with this for a little bit? But uh, um, other people, you know, probably don't assess their lives uh, frequently enough and sort of uh, look up, you know, after several years and say, "Gosh, how did I end up here when I really wanted to go over there?" So think about how, often, how often you assess your priorities and uh, and readjust them uh, if you need to. The next one. Oh, oh, here is. Oh, well, I'll tell you who she is in a minute. Uh-oh, where'd the volume go?
5: That's back to perfection, and I already told you there is none.
0: She's saying there's no such thing as a balanced you life. You're
5: perfect, so therefore you can't possibly stay in this state. That's not possible. There's always going to be something that happens. You've got to work a big project at work. Your kid's sick. you got a home of your parents. I don't know what it is, but something's going to happen. What I'm saying is learn, first of all, to consider balance over a longer period of time, and secondly, just catch it before it hits the floor that's all you really have to do you know if you haven't been home for a while go home don't think about work when you're there if you you know if you didn't study for one subject get on it you know so learn how to manage this don't get yourself in such a tizzy that every day you're trying to figure out oh I should have done this I should have done that I should have done this and I have a clean house and I got volunteer work to do that's nonsense so along with this concept just Make sure that you're considering things in a longer perspective and learning is part of that. So, some of it's learning at work, some of it's just learning around you, but keep yourself interested.
0: So that was Carol Bartz. Uh, if any of you came to the ETL last quarter, she was one of our speakers. This was from uh, a couple of years ago, uh, and, but I, I want to tell you, uh, she also came back, so if you want to hear the whole lecture uh, that she gave a few weeks ago, uh, you can look at that too. But I love this clip where she says I'm adamantly opposed to a balanced life. The point is, there's no such thing as short-term balance. You really need to look at balance over a very long period of time. Uh, let me tell you one quick story about this um, uh, that I didn't intend to tell, but I'll tell it anyway. Um a few years ago, um I was reading an article in Stanford magazine that was uh, about uh, balancing work and family for for women. Uh graduates of Stanford and they had all these little vignettes of uh, the mommy track, you know, how people balance work and family. And the last story in there was about a woman. It said, you know, there's a case of a woman who uh, graduated from Stanford Law School and she worked for several years, was quite successful, took time off when she had kids, started doing volunteer work and getting into the workforce slowly afterwards. Um, this didn't seem to hurt her very much. Her name is Sandra Day O'Connor. And I happened to have the honor of meeting Senator O'Connor a couple of years ago, and I told her that I use this story often with my students. And she said to me, which is sort of echoed the things in the article, which she said, you know what, your work life is really long, and your kids are little for really only a short time. And so she was able, in a very successful way, to balance this so that when her kids were little, and of course, for some of you who might not choose to have children, it might be something else that you take on. You know, maybe you chose to go join the Peace Corps for a couple years and say, you know what, I'm going to check out for a couple years, but I know I'll be able to get back on track. So this is about um, coming up with priorities over a long period of time as opposed to feeling like every single day you have to do everything. Okay, the next one. It is the little things that matter most. Now, I know all of you are extraordinarily bright, and you deliver on the big stuff. I mean, right, you're going to get that project done. The bridge isn't going to fall down that you 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 know that you designed. Uh, the software code is going to work. I mean, all of these are the big things. But you know when it comes down to it, it is the little things that matter the most. These are the little things. Like when you come in to interview, that you look someone in the eye, you shake their hand, you sit up straight, and you These are the things that end up having a tremendous effect on how people view you. Um, You know, there are so many people who are so busy who are going to give you opportunities, give you time, um, give you help on assignments. If you don't acknowledge their help, if you don't say thank you, they won't do it again. Again, it will be a situation where you won't even know what came up to bite you. But I have to tell you, for those people And I know this from all of my colleagues. I mean, I am telling you something that we all talk about. When you're talking to students and you're dealing with students, those students who are appreciative, those students who say thank you, um, those are the ones who you say, you know what, I'm going to help them again. You know, it didn't cost very much, but it was something that really made a big difference. In fact, I know a lot of you are probably, you know, at some point in the near future looking for jobs. Uh, One of the things about looking for jobs, you need to write a thank you note within 24 hours after you have that interview. In fact, within 12 hours would be good, and within 6 hours would be even better. You should send a quick note that says, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. It doesn't have to be a long long missive. This is about just acknowledging the time that people took. So anyway, I just want to leave you with this one is that it is the little things, and I want you to think about this. Even though you deliver on the big stuff, this is what's going to really set you apart uh, in in the world as you go forward. Now, this is interesting. You know, it really is about the team. And when I grew up, I was not an athlete. Um, and I was not someone who, you know, when I was growing up, there were not very many teams in classrooms. I know that all of you have many, many more team assignments than I had. But I realized I blew it, just blew it when I first got into the work world because I really thought everything really was a zero-sum game, right? You know, I win, you lose. And I wasn't terrible at working on teams. But over the years, I realized that was a huge mistake. And what I've learned is that when you're on a team, the key is making everybody else successful. If I make you successful, then I end up becoming even more successful. And it really is about giving away... Um, it, it might feel like you're giving away power, but you're not. The more you make other people around you successful, the more it comes back many, many, many fold. And I promise you from all of my years of experience that this is really true. And I hope this is something that you can experiment with with the teams you're on. And, and I guarantee you that that will be the case, that the more you give to others, uh, the more you get back. So, whoops, I did the wrong thing. The final slide. Never miss an opportunity to be fabulous. What this actually is, is you can state it another way, is this is not a dress rehearsal. You know, if you're not going to do your best work now, when are you planning on doing it? Uh, you know, we go through life often satisfying. you know, doing the minimum amount to get by. But, you know, in my class, I kind of make this rule the first day of class. I said, I promise to do my very, very best, and I expect the best from you. I will not ever tell you what you need to do to get an A, but I have to tell you the bar is really high. I have no problem giving every single person in the class an A, but I expect everyone to deliver 150% because that's what I'm putting in. Um, And you know the interesting thing about this? Students... And everyone else that I have ever worked with completely and totally embraces this. And I think the reason is that people are waiting, waiting for people to give them this, this instruction, waiting to tell them to do their best. Professors often are in situations where they tell people what to do to get an A, and that really caps what you do. OK, I'll do just enough to get an A. But when you open it up, all of a sudden it allows people to follow their passions, to follow their interests, to take things as far as they can. And, uh, I know that it just in working with my team here at SDVP, everybody does an amazing job. No one is ever told specifically what they have to do. They're sort of pointed in a direction, including myself, and said, okay, do the very, very best work. And it always blows my mind what is accomplished by, uh, can be accomplished by an incredibly small team, uh, when everybody is doing an amazing job. Now, there's an interesting story that sort of fell out of this. So I don't put up all these fancy slides and write never you know, with with fireworks in my classroom. I just put it as part of a bullet points in my list of things that I expect from the students in the class, you know, showing up on time, delivery, and never missing an opportunity to be fabulous. It's so interesting how sticky this idea is. In fact, it is so sticky that it keeps popping up. People, students write to me, and they write this in emails, they... Um, you know, they they put it in their assignments. It's something that just keeps coming up and again. And what happened is just a, a fun story here. One of the students in uh, my class last year uh, was sitting outside, and she had her little iPod Nano in, and she was sitting there, uh, you know, kind of rocking out before class, and I had not seen the Nano before. So I went up to her, and I said, gosh, can I take a look at that? I haven't seen the Nano before. And apparently, when you order a Nano online, you can have it engraved with something on the back. And she said, yeah, look. And she turned it over, and the back was engraved with, never miss an opportunity to be fabulous. (laughs) Now, she didn't do this for me. She did this for herself. This is what she wanted to look at every single day. And it's something I want to leave you with, because I think that if this is something we all embrace, it's something that, you know, sort of just makes the world a better place. And, in fact, the last video clip I'm going to play is one that I finally have listened to enough that it doesn't make me cry, but it is a video clip of, um, Kavita Ramdas. She is the president of the Global Fund for Women. And she is talking about the role of entrepreneurship in making a positive <laughs> impact in the world and our responsibility to use our entrepreneurial skills, uh, to have, uh, to, to make the world a better place. So I'm going to leave you with this clip, which coincidentally was exactly three years ago this week that she just was recorded. So a uh, perfect timing.
2: Um, I'll end by simply saying that I think at this moment in time that we find ourselves in the relative peace and security of a campus in the United States of America, um, it seems to me that the true spirit of entrepreneurism is desperately needed at a time when in the rest of the world um, there is hardly the kind of security that we have sitting here right now at this moment. There is hardly a sense of being at ease. We are a world at war. We are a place in our, in our history where there is, I believe, our very civilization is under attack. Whether that is sim- symbolized for us in the destruction of ancient antiquities in a place like Baghdad, which is not just a part of Iraqi civilization, it's a part of our shared human civilization. I think the moment for us to think as entrepreneurs, to be willing to immerse yourself, In a process to make change that is inclusive and that understands that we are part of one larger family a global community in the truest sense of that word is something that we are not only um, required to do it is something we are truly obligated to do and perhaps in the spirit of Passover I will end with one of my favorite quotes and what I hold on to these days which is a quote from the Talmud um, which is the Jewish book of wisdom It says, do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now. Walk humbly now. Love mercy now. We are not obligated to complete the task, but neither are you free to abandon it. Thank you very much.
0: So I want to thank all of you for listening to all of these. I invite all of you to send me ideas of things that you think you would want to add to this list of things you wish you knew when you were 20 or maybe things you wish you knew when you were 18 or 15 um, or or older. Um, And I want to open up for questions for anyone who has anything that they would like to add or ask.
1: Yeah. At the very beginning you mentioned... uh... These, uh, the five-dollar uh, seedling. Is there is there a list published of, of what everybody did?
0: Oh no! But I encourage you to try it yourself. <laughs> there are questions? Come on! There's got to be someone who has some burning question. Yeah. Yes
5: the West Point students react, given that's a different
0: question? A really good question. The so question is, how did the West Point students react uh, to my talk? Now, I have to tell you, um, here's the background for this. I was asked to give a similar talk at a conference last fall called the Frontiers in Education. And this was about 300 faculty members from engineering schools around the country. And I gave a similar talk, and it was focused on what things we can teach our students and the opportunities that we often miss in our classroom. And uh, there were several faculty members from West Point who were there. And they asked me to come and speak to their students. And I kept asking them, you sure you want me to say these things? I mean, you really want me to say these things to these West Point students? And they kept saying, yes, yes, please do. Don't change a word of what you said. And here I was in a room filled with young men and women uh, in uniform, 500 of them. And you know what? They completely and totally embrace this. I have rarely seen a room of people more transfixed. And I think the reason was they are actually being trained very much to be leaders. And they realized that the things I was talking about are the things that they are being taught at West Point. And they realized that the skills they were being taught translate perfectly into uh, the entrepreneurial world. And so um, I have now lots of wonderful pen pals uh, from West Point students. So they, they, I was very surprised and extremely pleasantly surprised. Surprised. Yeah? Um,
4: how, where in your career have you made use of your neuroscience?
0: Oh, good question. Every single day. Uh, <laughs> the is First of all, there is nothing that you will ever learn that will be wasted. Um, I am actually passionate about neuroscience, and I still spend time reading about it. Um, I just realized um, I really was not a, uh, if you can sort of, tell by watching me speak. I'm really not a sit-at-the-lab-bench-doing-research kind of person. And so um, I really am much more of a people person. And so I really wanted to use my science and technology skills in a more social environment. I also wanted uh, to see how I could take some of the ideas and technology that were um, created in labs and figure out how to commercialize them. So uh, my knowledge of science I use all all the time. And in fact, I'm working on a book project right now we will see if it goes from the book proposal stage to actually into a book this is one of those things that i is sitting on my desk for a long period of time where i'm trying to look at how we can use neuroscience to understand companies better any other questions okay well thank you very much this was a sincere pleasure